Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Yes, my name is Quentin. Uh, my wife, Kim, is here with me. Um, I'm the pastor of Redemption Church, Calgary South. We just celebrated uh, five years together as a church. Uh, we planted it five years ago. Well, that, as you guys know, it, that starts before that. We had a small group for a year before that, and then a core group, building that core group for a year. But we officially launched five years ago. And so it's so good to see another church plant, another Redemption Church here in Alberta. Excited to see all your faces. And uh, Pastor Chris is in my church here this morning, and he's preaching to our people. So it's so awesome to, to trade pulpits and to, and to get to know the church family that is here and for him to get to know ours as well. If you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, I'd ask you to turn to the book of 1 John. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I know this church has many. So if you don't have one, just put your hand up and they'd love to bring that to you so you have God's word uh, before you because we want you to check everything that we're teaching according to God's very word. Well, as you are turning in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4 and we're going to be looking at verses 7 uh, to 12. Um, as you're turning there, just share a little bit of my background. My wife and I come from northern British Columbia, a little town called Fort St. John. Anybody know that? Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, Red Deer is much bigger than Fort St. John, but uh, we both were born and raised there. And uh, before I've been a pastor, I've been a pastor for about six years. I worked for 16 years in oil and gas, uh, so electrical instrumentation, all that fun stuff. And so uh, I've been down here by Red Deer working before, so I know the community uh, and what it's like here. And so it's so good to be here with you. But as you're turning to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, uh, let me ask you this. Why do you think the New Testament seems to be so consumed with loving one another? Why is it that the apostles John and Peter and Paul call the church over and over again to love one another? Or even more so, why did Jesus himself even make a new commandment in John 13, 34, to love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Why do, why do we need that kind of an exhortation? Why is there a need for such a command? I mean, do we really need to be commanded to love one another? Like, isn't love just one of those easier aspects of the Christian faith that just comes naturally as a Christian Right, That as the Lord saves people and draws them together as a church, that authentic love for each other is just some kind of a, an abundant, utopian kind of a bliss that we all share together where everyone just gets along so perfectly and nobody gets into a conflict. When there is never a hurt feeling, never being left out, there's never sin against each other. That our Christian lives are just kind of a, this kind of a superficial loving bliss. Well, why do we need such a command to love one another? Well, if you've been a Christian for some time and you've been around church in your life, you know full well why we need such a command. Why we need to be told and reminded over and over again in the scriptures to love one another. And we need that because we know that love just doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. We know that love is a spiritual fruit and a part of the spiritual walk. That we always don't love so well, that, that we always don't get along, that love can be a challenge for us, and that instead of some kind of an idealistic, loving bliss, that we Christians can, can still be prone to hurting one another. We can still be prone to offending one another, and we can even be unloving at times. 
Now, the, friend, the reason that we need to be uh, told and commanded to love one another over and over again in the scriptures is because we need to hear it over and over again. We need to be reminded over and over again how crucial love is to God because it has everything to do with all that he is. As the Apostle John is known as being the Apostle of Love, no other writer in the New Testament addresses love as much as he does. In fact, in, in just the book of 1 John alone, he mentions love 24 times. And this command here to love one another is squarely addressed already in three sections. This is the third time that you actually hear this in the book of 1 John. And so, friends, as as uh, we're looking here at the book of 1 John, I want you to think about the, this book as a mirror of authenticity. That as you look into this mirror, it's a reflection of, of, of yourself as you look into the, the mirror of God's word. And we're asking ourselves, what is authentic love looking like? That if we want to be authentically loving each other as we're called to, we must embrace what true love is really is. And so let's read in chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, as those who you have called out of darkness, those who you have called out of our sin, we come before you as the, the royal priesthood, the, the holy nation, your body, your family, your children. We come as those who are the temple of God, filled by your Holy Spirit, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God, we want to hear from you this morning. And so as you speak through your word, we pray that you would speak powerfully. Your living word would speak powerfully into our hearts and that it would bring further change and transformation as we aim to be Christians who love one another. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you want to love one another the way that God loves, you must embrace what authentic love truly is. And to embrace what authentic love truly is means that we must start with the source. We must start with knowing the foundation of authentic love. That's your first point, knowing the foundation of authentic love. Because that's where John begins here in verses 7 to 8 as he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So friends and beloved church, just as John addresses his own church with this language of beloved church, if we are to love one another authentically, 
As we are so clearly commanded right here in the scriptures and elsewhere, it all starts out by knowing the foundation for such love. And as John says here, it all comes down to knowing that love is from God and knowing our God who is love. And so let's start out with this concept that love is from God. Love is from God. What this means, friends, is that love isn't a thing just in and of itself. Love isn't something that just mysteriously showed up one day from out of nowhere. Love isn't something that just evolved from within us as some kind of a survival mechanism but rather that love came from somewhere else and love came from someone else. It's a source that is outside of ourselves, a source that is outside of this world. It's love that came from the very fountainhead of love, the person of God himself. That's what John means here by saying, for or because love is from God. Meaning that when you see it, And when you experience it right in front of you, it didn't come from nowhere. And it definitely did not come from within your natural self, but rather that it came from the true source of God himself. It's like when a prospector finds a gold nugget on a dry creek bed. He knows that that piece of gold just didn't appear there randomly from nowhere. He knows that that nugget of gold came from a source up in the valley, a vein of gold that is somewhere else. It's also like a sunbeam that you might feel upon your face. And you know that that beam of light and heat didn't come from the earth, but that it came from the sun, right? Which is 147 million kilometers away. You feel that light and you feel that heat. It's coming from a reaction. It's coming from a fusion that that just continually pours out and shines forth energy towards us with an unlimited supply and abundance. And so, friends, biblically speaking, again, love isn't just something in and of itself. No, love is from God. And, friends, we need to know this. And we need to know this all the more. You know, especially in a world that is so confused about love, a world that is so flippant about love, a world that's trying to redefine love and and even our own hearts that don't fully understand what love is. So friends, love isn't just defined by experience or feelings or sentiment, but rather that love is defined by its source. It's defined by God himself, who, who, by the way, John also says here, as you look at the end of verse 8, says that he's not only the source of love, but he is love himself. God is love, it says. And so, friends, what we see here is that the source of love is God's very nature. It's who he is. He is that sun radiating the beams of love. He is the pure and authentic love to the very core of who he is, radiating and and overflowing that love to us. One commentator, Leon Morris, puts it this way. He says, God is love means more than God is loving or that God sometimes loves. It means that he loves, not because he finds objects worthy of his love, but because it is his nature to love. 
His love for us depends not on what we are, but on what he is. He loves us because he is that kind of a God, because he is love. So friends, the, the, the word for love here in the Greek is the word agapao. That's the root agape love. You might have heard that before. Uh, as ancient Greek in that day had five different types of words for love, each possible word choice has different nuances and meanings in regards to love. But as agape love is what's being used here, this is used most often to speak about the quality and the kind of love that is associated with God's love. Agape literally means, and it literally speaks of an unconditional love. It's love that is given from one person to another, not by preference or partiality, but a love that is freely chosen and freely given love from within the benevolent courts of God. And it's love that is all according to his abundant grace and his will alone. It's love that can't be earned by any kind of effort, it's love that cannot be coerced or enticed. It's love that's not based on a fleeting feeling or an emotion, but rather love that is fully benevolent and charitable. Love that seeks and keeps the best for his beloved. Love towards God's people, despite their fallenness, despite their fool foolishness. And so, friends, that love that John is commanding his church to have for one another is this same agape love. It's a love that's not based on favoritism or feelings. It's a, it's a love that doesn't even expect to receive love in return, but love that is from God, love of who God is and who he fully is. And so we understand this love as that which is given freely, that which is given so, so willingly to love each other for the good of the other person. It's the same love that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2.4. We read this already today. Ephesians 2.4, but, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world or even way back to Exodus 34, 6, where God proclaims his own name and his own character to Moses, where he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in what? Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So friends, the type of love that God gives us, and God is, is that great abounding, pursuing, and keeping love, love that can't be found anywhere else or sourced in anyone else so perfectly than in God himself. Now, as we think about God's love here and how he loves for the good and for the best of his beloved, we have to make sure to understand how his love rolls out. That his love isn't just some kind of a big universalist tent kind of an approach to love. Or that love is love. You can just define love however you want to do it. That, that maybe God doesn't care about your sin. God doesn't care about your transformation. That he doesn't care about your holiness. No, if we think of love that way, that's a false idea of love. No, friends, God's love doesn't wink at our sin. God's love is not like a spoiling grandfather who just closes his eyes to our behavior. 
No, although his love is not contingent upon our own righteousness, he is no less concerned about our growth in righteousness. Now, I remember an old preacher once saying, he said, God's love is not a pampering love. God's love is a perfecting love. Friends, his love is a refining and transforming love. On one hand, it's a love that sought you out in your sin, but in the same breath, it's love that wants to sanctify you from your sin, for your good, for your best, and for God's glory. It's like the love you have for your children, a love that not only gloats over them in all of their cuteness, but even more so, a love that knows when to discipline, right? Disciplining out of love for their good, right? Proverbs 13, 24 teaches us, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Love and discipline. Friends, the the type of love God gives is a disciplining love. Hebrews 12, 6 reminds us of that, right? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So this is also true when it comes to the church. When it comes to church discipline, although so often misunderstood and even avoided by many churches, discipline is ultimately about love. It's it's love for the purity of the church and it's love for that person under discipline. No, friends, love according to God isn't a lopsided, spoiling, pampering love, but a love that comes enough to tell the truth, to confront when the time is right. It's a love that exhorts. It's a love that corrects. It's a love that teaches. It's a love that even takes us through the hardest of things, through the the hardest of trials. It's a love that would even bring us through suffering ultimately for our good. It's the same kind of love that God had for Job. God definitely loved Job, but he went through a lot of suffering. It's a love that fuels Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So again, it's not as the world defines or as the world desires, but it's a standard of love that is poured out from the very courts of heaven in the way that only God can, the standard that John then holds his church to here in 1 John. And so again, it all starts out with a right theology. We have to understand God according to the way God reveals it and love according to the way God reveals it. So it starts out with a very study in the character of God himself that he is the baseline of love. He is the measuring rod of love. And we compare everything to that. He is the mirror. And so with all of that in your pocket now, now now let's look at this, how this love is to be translated to us. So look back to the second half of verse 7 where it says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then verse 8 says, anyone who does not love God does not know God. So both we, we see here both positively and negatively put, John is connecting love to knowing God, specifically showing us that authentic love has everything to do 
with truly knowing God. In fact, he says that. He says to truly love would, would really mean that you, you're actually born of God, he says. Now, born of God, what does that mean? Well, that's not born of God in the general sense that everybody in this world is born as, a, as an act of God. The sense here of being born of God that is being used is that you're a born again, born of God person. Well, how do I know that? Well, it comes down to the simple connection found right here in the text between being born of God and knowing God. Friends, the only way that you can truly know God is to be born again by God. To know God in the biblical sense is to know him in an intimate, saving relationship, which is only experienced by who? It's by those who are born again, those who are born of God. And so there's a key understanding here of how rebirth is connected to truly knowing God. And so we understand that as John is teaching here, that the authentic Christian relationship with God is crucially connected to authentic Christian love. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And so the test of love here is so crucial, friends. It's so crucial, and it's so connected to the reality of, of the rebirth. And so my question for you is, have you been born again? And if you have been born again, how is that proof of love rolling itself out in your life? What is the evidence of your love showing to one another here in the church and in, in the family of God? J.C. Ryle said it so rightly. He says, if we have no love, we have no grace, no regeneration, no true Christianity. It's a pretty serious statement. And so if you find yourself, friends, really struggling to love, there's nothing wrong with taking a very good look at yourself. The Bible calls us all the time to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith. I mean, the whole book of 1 John, take it and read it this week. It's, it's an examination. It's a mirror into your heart, right? You're saying this, but what is your life revealing? And so if you're struggling to love, take a look at yourself, take a look at your heart, maybe even take a look at that rebirth. If you claim to know God, where is the love? Anyone who does not love does not know God. So your love or your lack of love may be saying a lot. Friends, as agape love, that, you know, that kind of love that God is, seeks the good of others, whose good are you ultimately seeking? And who are you ultimately loving? Is it God? Is it others? Or is it yourself? Friends, to be born again is to be born of God. And to be born of God means that you were born into his likeness. And that it, as you begin to grow from being a baby and growing up into maturehood as a Christian, you're starting to show the attributes of God. You're starting to show some of his character. And John really highlights here the attributes of love. Because God is love. And if God is love, his offspring, his children... His church is going to carry the attribute of love. Now, does that mean that we're going to do it perfectly? No. No, only God is perfect. Only he has perfect love. 
But friends, this is something that we can grow into. And this is something that we grow up in. That as you put off your old self and as you put on Christ, as you give yourself daily to truly knowing God by his word as John is teaching and as the whole word of God teaches, you will see that you're going to begin to look more and more like God. You're going to begin to to, to grow in love for God and for others. To which John says here, he says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so, friends, it all begins with truly knowing the foundation of authentic love. This is something that you just can't whip up on your own. Authentic love is not something that is naturally within you. It's sourced outside of yourself. It's found in God alone, who is both the source and the substance of authentic love. Now, it's one thing to say to someone, I love you. But it's another to show that love, right? Like it's one thing to say to your wife, I love you. But it's another to give her a token of that love, to show that love. Maybe, maybe it's a gift. Maybe it's an action. I mean, Valentine's Day is coming up, guys. Flowers, date, right? Time. Or maybe for your husband, ladies, maybe that means that as you say that you love him, it's joined with a physical affection or attention, Or maybe it's that special dinner that he loves, right? And all the tummies start rumbling here today. But it's so true, isn't it? That that, that love just isn't about words. Love just isn't about knowledge. But it comes through action. And it comes through experience. So friends, the kind of love that comes from God, who is love, has action. It's not just in word, but it's in deed. It has a demonstration The kind of agape love from God has the most infinitely greatest loving demonstration that has ever been revealed or known. As John goes on to say in verse 9, take a look at verse 9. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So friends, as our love must start out by knowing the foundation of authentic love, we must also fuel our love by seeing the demonstration of authentic love. So that's point number two, seeing the demonstration of authentic love. That's that absolute, perfect, pure, sufficient, final demonstration of authentic love as witnessed in the very sending of love himself, our Savior, his only Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. So friends, if you want to see the greatest love in action ever, just look to the cross. Just look to the cross. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into our world. Friends, to make manifest means to make visible, to make visible that as God would profess his love to his people throughout all of redemptive history, there was no love more visible than when he sent his son to save us. To make manifest doesn't mean that his love was hidden Now, as you go study the Old Testament, we see 
that God not only expressed his love for his people, but that he very evidently demonstrated that love towards them throughout redemptive history. Like if you look all the way back to the garden, as we see Adam and Eve on the heels of sin, what were they doing? They're trying to cover up their their shame and and they're they're trying to cover up their sin by covering themselves with with leaves. But, But God comes along, he pursues them, he calls out to them and what does he do? He takes those leaves and he covers their shame with skin. That was God demonstrating his love for them, pursuing them, covering them with animal skins. And if you fast forward to the story of Noah and how the world was just so evil in every way and how the Lord spared humanity through one family on the ark, that was a demonstration of love. A demonstration of love to to a world that did not deserve it. Or how about with the Israelites when they were saved from Pharaoh in Egypt and they were saved through such extremely visible and tangible ways as God parts the Red Sea and he destroys their enemies. And how God also then would relent from bringing disaster upon his people, bringing the next generation into the promised land. All of these were real and tangible demonstrations of God's saving love towards his people. But yet all of those and more are such, even though they're such incredible examples that prove his love through action, all of them are nothing in comparison to the saving action of God displayed as he sent himself, as God sent his son into the world, right? A spiritually dead and evil world so that we might live through him. In this is love. This is the meaning of love. If you want to define love, this is it. In this, John says, this is love. Not that we have loved God. We didn't love God first. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he did that by being the propitiation for our sins. So God's love is propitiation. And what love that is. That not only did God determine to save us by his love, not only did he send his son by his love, not only did he send his son to come down to earth, to put on flesh, to live for us, but he sent him on a death mission for the propitiation of our sins so that you and I could live and live forever. Propitiation is kind of a big word. We don't use that much in our everyday life today, but it's a word that packs so much meaning So propitiation, what does it mean? Well, propitiation comes from the Greek word halasmon, which literally means an action or an offering or a gift that is given for the appeasing or the averting of someone's rightful anger or wrath. That you may have offended someone so very seriously or you have sinned against somebody so grievously that reparations are going to have to be paid in order to make amends. And so what John is referring to here regarding God's love through propitiation is that as an infinite debt of sin is owed to God by us, owed to God by the whole world, that as we so grievously sinned against his holy name, Romans 2.5 tells us in that sin, what are we doing? We're storing up wrath against ourselves. For the day of God's wrath. 
and that this wrath of God for our sin could never be repaid, it could never be appeased by our own doing. In fact, this whole concept of propitiation was often used when it came to also pagan religions of that day. When people all over the known world believed in gods who were angry at them all the time and that they had to continually be settling the score and and appeasing the wrath of all of these false gods. And so you see people all over the world, even today, offering sacrifices, offering offerings, even to the point of sacrificing people, even to the point of sacrificing their own children to appease these so-called gods. And so their religion is a continual propitiation on their part. But friends, the, the difference between the true God of the Bible is that as he is both God of justice and love, even though he does have wrath over our sin, the difference with the true God is that we could never make enough reparations. We could never offer enough propitiation. No, the difference with the gospel is that he is the one who makes the offering himself in order to satisfy his own wrath. Right? As we could never sacrifice a knife enough or give enough, and as he loved us even before the foundation of the world, his benevolent plan was always to pay the debt himself. His plan was always to come and satisfy his own wrath out of love. And he did that by sending his son to make propitiation. Friends, that could never be made by us. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is not trying harder, doing better. The gospel is that we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't do enough good. And God knew that. He knew that before the foundation of time. And so he planned to send his son as a propitiation for our sins. And friends, that is love. And that is the greatest love. That's authentic love. That the only son, the only action, the only offering that could save anybody from the wrath of sin came through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is love. And this is the love that we compare all love to. And this is the sweetest, most beautiful, most awe-producing reality that we could ever wrap our minds around. Out of love, God condemns his own son, to save us. That out of love that we don't deserve, because of God's loving character, right? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He crushes his son for our iniquities. That as we had an infinite debt to pay that could never be repaid by a sacrifice of a, a trillion Passover lambs, there was only one perfect lamb God himself, God the Son, who so willingly suffered the excruciating wrath of God that every one of us deserve for our sin. That it was Jesus who suffered the infinite weight of God's anger out of love for us. Right? That for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. That's propitiation, friends. That is love. That is infinite love, which leads to infinite life. 
You know, as we love to sing in the, in the, in the hymn, Christ Alone, we sing, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Do you know that there's churches that are removing those words? They're taking out the wrath of God. It's essential to the gospel. And so we praise our God, friends, for such wrath-appeasing love. That is love. That is authentic love. I mean, just think how Paul articulates this in Romans 5, 6, 8. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let me ask you, can you see it? Are you beholding it? Can you fathom it? Can you understand it? It's like the old hymn, And Can It Be? The lyrics go like this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Friends, this is why we sing. This is why music even exists. This is why we even have songs, to praise God for his unfathomable love. Even though we can't really fully comprehend it, we, we apprehend it and we sing it. We embrace it. We behold it. One commentator says this. He said, he said, it is one of the New Testament's resounding paradoxes that it is God's love that averts God's wrath from us. And indeed, that is precisely in this averting of wrath that we see what real love is. So friends, this is who God is. As God is both loving and just, he satisfies his own justice by loving us enough to sacrifice his own son for us. So it's one thing to say, I love you, and it's another to show it, and to show it so infinitely in the propitiation of Jesus Christ. So friends, as John is defining authentic love for his people, again, God is the standard, God is the source, God is the substance, and God is the sacrifice. It's all him, all of him. And so if you're trying to explain the love of God to someone, be careful to tell them the whole story. Tell the whole story about the horrifying tragedy of our sin in the face of God. Tell them the bad news before you give them the good news. Follow up with that good news, though, that because of the love of God, God satisfies his own wrath to save sinners because he loves us, that we didn't deserve it, but he did it exactly because he is a God of love, and that because of such love, that should just melt us in humility. That should bring us to such confession. That should bring us to such repentance and gratitude and love back towards him. Friends, authentic love is, is not to be defined by this world, but by God. And he defined it 2,000 years ago. And so we need to see it. We need to see the demonstration of his authentic love. Embrace it. 
Believe in it, and you will be loved forever. And so as we're to be knowing the foundation of authentic love and seeing the demonstration of authentic love, as we are recipients of such amazing love, we then need to be the substantiation of authentic love. And so as John began this whole section up by commanding his church to love one another, and as we now see the groundwork of it all, he then says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That because of all of that amazing love on display, we also ought to love one another. And then he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Friends, it's his love that motivates. It's his love that compels and propels the love that we are to be having for one another. I mean, when you really think about it, how how could we not operate in this way? How could, if we're truly beholding the love of God, how could we not love one another? If God so loves us, he says we also ought to love one another. When we see ought to, that means that there's no other way. There's no other option. When we see ought to, that's how it works, friends. We are, as we are founded upon his love, as we are fueled by his love, we are also bound to his love, to love others, to love one another. But yet even though we believe all this, we may say at times in our heart, and you know, that person is just too hard to love. Or the way that person treated me, they don't deserve my love. Or you might say, I tried to love that person, but they didn't return my love. Therefore, I'm cutting them off from my love. Maybe it's a friend who betrayed you or hurt you. Maybe it's someone in your life or even in the church who did you wrong. Maybe you just don't feel like loving them anymore. Maybe it's someone in your life who not only doesn't love you, but but maybe despises you. Someone who maybe has used you. Maybe someone who has sinned so grievously against you, and you have no room in your heart anymore for them. Maybe you're withholding your love from someone in your family. Maybe you're even withholding love from your spouse. Maybe as a spouse who's had love withheld from them, you have no hope of there ever being a change. Friends, although this this fallen world can be really tough, and it can be really exhausting, and it can be really hurtful, our choice not to extend love towards each other is not something that we have the right to. Choosing to withhold your heart, especially in the church, is not a freedom that we have. No, because we are bound to love, we are compelled to a love that is not set by my own standard or my own feelings, by my own experience, but a standard of love that is set forth in the fountainhead of God himself, which is ultimately poured out into all of us by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. That's, again, that's God's agape love. Right? It's a love that isn't conditional. It isn't earned. It can't be bought. 
No, as we remember the shocking truth of the beauty of the cross, we must remember that we weren't loved by God because we were lovable. No, the Bible tells us we were lovers of self. We were natural haters of God. We were betrayers of God since the very beginning. We broke his righteous laws and we continued to sin before the very face of God. We rebelled from him. We went our own way. We don't deserve his love. But yet he so lavishly poured it out towards us. It overflowed to us through his son. Again, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Friends, that's the standard of the love you are to have for one another. That's the motivation. That's the measure. And that's how we resolve this call and this command to love one another. So it's something we can't reject. It's something we need to engage. We need to substantiate. Friends, to substantiate means to show something to be true. That as we are commanded to love one another, the very response and reaction of loving each other as God so loved us proves to each other and it proves to the world that this gospel stuff we talk about all the time is really true. It shows to the world that Jesus is really true. And that's how Paul, or sorry, that's how John closes out this section as he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Right? As God is spirit, and as the Bible teaches us that God is invisible, Colossians 1.15, but as Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as he is now ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, the way that the world sees the truth of God's love is by seeing his love in us and the love that we have for one another. The way that the world most clearly sees the truth of God is by seeing his transforming, perfecting love in the church. That as God's presence abides in us by his spirit and as his love is being poured out into one another, it all comes down to love. That's why uh, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So friends, if you want to show the truth of God to your family, to your friends, to the world, it all comes down to love. The love that we have for one another here. And then also through that, how God's love is then extended into the world through you, through the loving hands and feet of the church, showing God to them, substantiating that truth about God through love. It's a love that never ends. It's a love that covers a multitude of sins. It's a love that exhorts it's a love that confronts. It's a love that admonishes. But it's also a love that confesses and repents and forgives and reconciles. Love that counsels and heals and worships. Friends, this is what God is all about. This is who he is. And if we are his children, this is now who we are as well. So the reason that John needed to instruct his church about love and the reason that the Holy Spirit needs to instruct our churches today, my church, your church today, is again because this love is not natural to us. 
It's a supernatural love. And the reason that we need to hear about this over and over again is because authentic love is not easy. Authentic love takes work. Authentic love is sourced in the eternal fountainhead of God's abundant love. And as Christ's example of wrath-appeasing sacrificial love sets the standard for all of us to be measured against. And as we have the abiding spirit of God within us who completes that love and perfects that love in us, friends, you can actually love one another. And we must love one another. And so as Redemption Church Red Deer is coming up to its second year anniversary pretty soon, right? Together as a church, you guys have been gathering. I think it's just so fitting for for all of you. It's just like our church. We just celebrated five years. For us to continue in unity and strength, it needs to continue in love. And that we need to be striving in that by the strength of the Spirit together. Knowing that the, the days are getting darker. It's getting much more urgent. And what binds us together is that love. And the way that we can effectively be telling the truth into this world, the truth about God, is that we love one another. The love, this kind of love will be found in no other place than the grace and love that you have in Christ Jesus. That as we know that the church is not made up of perfect people who love perfectly, Christ's love is being perfected really means it's being completed in you. One day we'll, we will experience perfect love in the face of Jesus Christ as he comes back to take us home. But until that day, we are to be the substantiation of that love, being the proof of that true and authentic love. That love is from God, that Jesus is real, that the gospel truly saves and it truly transforms as we authentically love one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. If you want to love one another the way God loves, you must know the foundation of authentic love. You must see the demonstration of authentic love. And you must be the substantiation of authentic love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we have heard you speak so clearly through your word, as your word is sufficient for all of life and godliness, as we as your children, as we as your church, aim for godliness, for for holiness, for growth, we see how essential love is in that picture. As uh, this this church, Redemption Red Deer, aims to to reach the world, as they want to see the lost saved, the saved, matured, and the mature multiplied. We just pray for your, your hand amongst these people as, as, the, as they walk in the, in the days ahead, that they'd be holding fast to the love that only comes from you. So where there needs to be repentance, God, would you grant it? Where there is confession, would you also enable that as well? And would you prepare hearts as well to just continually love one another, knowing that we will not love perfectly, knowing that we will hurt each other. But in that, there is always this resounding, beautiful, perfect, authentic love of God that drives us to forgive and heal and love one another to prove that the gospel is absolutely true 
and that the world needs to hear. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.